Hi, I'm Sarah Bond, and this is my husband, Clint, um, and we are covenant members here. This morning, we continue to worship God by studying his word. Today's reading helps us see how the furnace of God's faithfulness forges faith in God and his promises. God cuts a covenant to guarantee his faithfulness, and his grace invites us to know steadfast love to fertilize faith in our hearts. Genesis 15, 1 through 8. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram. I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless. And the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look towards the heavens. Number the stars if you are able to number them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. And he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. But he said, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? Join me in the call and response. All flesh is grass, and all, and all its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. Thank you, Bonds. I appreciate it. Good job, Clint. It is a joy to gather with you all in worship. I add my greetings to those you've already heard. If you don't have a Bible open, I encourage you to do so. If you need some, we got a whole stack of them over here. You can get up and get them, put it on your phone, look at it. We're going to work our way not just through this passage, but beyond our passage uh, through the whole chapter 15. Uh, this is a, a, an amazing passage. I'm excited to study it with you. Uh, if it's your first time with us, uh, we find ourselves in the middle uh, of looking at Abram the patriarch, and we're, we're studying and celebrating God's faithfulness, and that is displayed in his willingness to keep his promises at his expense, is what we're going to really, really celebrate today. Uh, Abram's faithfulness to this point has waxed and waned, and God really gives us just an unbelievable picture of how he can remain faithful even when we are faithless. Uh, We join Abram in in the questions, uh, the last question of these verses. Uh, We we stopped reading at verse 8, and and Abram looks at God and just says, how are we going to know? Like, how how do we know? Right before that, uh, he had asked God, what what can you do? And and these are both in response to God saying that that he's going to be faithful to his promises, the promise of land and the promise of offspring. During the inauguration of Abram's covenant in chapter 12 of Genesis, those were the two key promises. And now, after 25 years, long time, uh, maybe not 25 years at this point, maybe 15 to 20 years in Abram's life, that's most of Genesis that we celebrate his life, uh, Abram is asking, what are you going to do to make this happen? How will we know? And we join Abram in that question. If you're a Christian here, you know Christ personally, you know the promises that he gives to his people. He promises to never leave you or forsake you. And you say, it doesn't really match how I'm feeling. 
He promises that he is the prince of peace and he will give you peace. And you, and you say, how long till that's reality? He promises that, that all that is intended for, from, for evil from the enemy, he is using for good. And you join Abram in this question of, it doesn't, doesn't really seem like that. Seems like the bad guys are winning. And worse than struggling to believe, we impose upon God the poor experiences that we've had with other people and their promises to us. Many of us are bruised or broken, burned by promises that have not been fulfilled by people, organizations, friend groups, family, spouses, and we impose that brokenness on God. Well, today's passage It really is a geographical landmark in the whole landscape of Scripture, God's redemptive story, whereby God wants you to see clearly that he is faithful, and he guarantees it at personal expense of himself. This this reading today, what we're going to study, it's like the Everest, the highest point of God revealing his faithfulness. This is like uh, the Tower of Americas in the San Antonio skyline. It is the marker. This is like the Statue of Liberty. When we are going to a land of freedom, we know it's marked by the faithfulness of God as is seen in this covenant. This is an invitation of the Lord for you to celebrate what your heart hungers for. And you do. You hunger for a kind of relationship that is guaranteed to be faithful even to death. That's why so many people want to get married. A relationship that's, that's committed, that's, that's bound for better or for worse, in richness and poverty, in sickness, health, till death do us part. This is why our culture loves stories that celebrate that, that kind of commitment that goes to death. We love the Hobbit and Lord of the Rings, J.R.R. Tolkien, whether it's the books or the movies, but we love Sam and Frodo, that, that they are committed and determined to destroy the ring, even if it means they die. Or we love Aragorn and his resolve to claim the throne from Sauron. Or Gandalf and his willingness, his dedication to God and protect to the point of death. We love narratives like that because there's something in us that longs for that kind of relationship. This is what's in store. And we're inspired by it too, where where somehow uh, people like Desmond Doss, if you're familiar with the story of Hacksaw Ridge, it was a, a, a story about his life where as a pacifist, he's the first person to ever win the National Medal of Honor because his participation in the Battle of Okinawa Without carrying a weapon, not bearing any arms, he entered into death, he entered into warfare at cost of himself, committed to life to such an extent he just was pulling people out. Go into death, grab them, and carry them out. 75 people, he did that. And we get inspired by that. Why? Because this idea of commitment unto death is something that we want because our hearts hunger for that kind of security. You need it. Our hearts hunger for that kind of assurance of love. You need it. 
our hearts hunger for that kind of power that someone cares for us that much. It just lifts us. Our hearts hunger for that level of purpose, that if, that if someone loves us to that extent, then that is something to live for because we live from it. That's what we're talking about today. And, and the problem is that too many Christians, because of the brokenness and the bruise, the being burned from the broken promises of our world, we impose that on God and we get lost in the wrestling match of our faith and we begin to believe the empty promises of our world. Well, no matter where you are, God wants to meet you. And it's a place of grace. I mean, an extensive amount of chapters in Genesis are spent with Abraham's covenant. Starting in chapter 12, it was the inauguration of the covenant. And now what we're going to see is the ratification in this covenant ceremony. But he continues to go with Abram. He gets to a place where he makes an addition and finally a confirmation of that covenant in verse 22. But where we are right now in this story and in life is that we need assurance. We need assurance that God is going to be faithful to his promises. The first thing that we see when we look at the passage is that God reinforces his promised seed. The next thing we're going to see is that God reinforces his promised land. Those first two promises that he gave Abram in the inauguration, he reinforces them now. And look how they begin. If you look at chapter 15 with me, at the beginning, after these things, you'll remember that Abram uh, defeated with his 318 trained men. I mean, wouldn't you like to have 318 trained army people at your house? Abram did. And he went with them and conquered the kings and rescued Lot. And then Melchizedek, the, high, the priest of the Most High God, came and he blessed him, the king of Salem, the king of righteousness. You'll remember this. And the blessings of God were mediated to Abraham through the banquet, that first sacramental supper uh, that was given after these things. Abram encounters the Lord in a vision. And the vision begins this. You see it in verse 1. God says to Abram, fear not. And isn't that, I mean, we could almost stop there. Why do we have trouble believing the promises of God? Because our life is marked more by fear than by faith. We live by what we see. We're rattled internally, and we forfeit the security that God offers through his covenant faithfulness. Fear not. I am, says the Lord. Fear not, I am, says the Lord to Abraham and to you. He says, I am your shield. I am your very great reward. <laughs> and I love Abram's response. When the God of the universe says that to him, he goes, uh, what will you give me? I mean, can you identify with that? What will you give me? Because you promised me offspring, and I'm old, and my wife's barren. And all I've got is this servant, Eleazar, a Syrian of Damascus. What will you give me? I mean, you gave me your promise, but I live in a world of broken promises, and I don't see how this could be a possibility. Is this guy supposed to be my heir? Abraham is living by what he sees. He's living by what he feels, and he's calling into question the reality of God's faithfulness and God's promises. Friends, delay in the delivery of God's promises is not a denial of God's faithfulness. 
You need to hear that again. Delay in the delivery of God's promises are not a denial of God's faithfulness. And Abram needs a sign. How will I know God doubles down on his promise? And he says, it's going to be your kid, Abram. It's going to come from your wife, Sarai. And it's so much greater than you can imagine. He says, come with me. Come out. And this time is important. It's at night. And we're going to see how the timing of Abram's wrestling match with the Lord illustrates and helps us identify with the furnace that we get in, the heated moments where God is just forming us with the fire of his faithfulness. This is Abram. And God says, come on outside. Look at the sky. What do you see? And this is before light pollution. There was a few campfires around, but he could see the heavens. He could see trillions and trillions and trillions of stars. Looking beyond what he sees temporally, Abram's invited to look into eternity. And God says to him, as many stars are in the heavens, so will your offspring be. <laughs> That's astounding. And then it says in verse 6, Abram believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. The cry of his heart, oh Lord, what will you give me? The response of the illustration of the sign. The point is that the stars could never be counted. And God is so faithful from that place of barrenness, from that place of agedness. God is pleased to make his faithfulness clear. Here's how the New Testament reflects on this reality. It is truly a landmark in this, the landscape of Chris, uh, Scripture. Uh, but in Paul in Romans 4, he said, he, this is Abraham, he did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead. Okay, first of all, can we just say that y'all might have been called old in your life, but no one said, like, you're so old, you're just as good as dead, right? If they have, then on behalf of all of humanity, I apologize. Abram is described this way twice by Paul and once by the author of Hebrews. Why? My man was old. He was about 100 years old. He didn't weaken in faith when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promises of God, but he grew strong in his faith and gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he promised. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. But the words that was counted to him as righteous were not written for his sake alone. That means it's written for y'all too. Why? It was counted to us also who believe in him who was raised from the dead, Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. You see the, the confirmation of the promised seed that would come from Abram and Sarai. His offspring would be a greater one, Jesus Christ. He would live the perfect life. He would be un, unwavering in his faithfulness, and yet he would die. And he would go to a place more barren than a womb and, and more old than Abraham, and that's the grave, dead. He wasn't as good as dead. He was dead. And Jesus rose again for justification for all who believe so that by faith and faith alone, we can be in a right relationship with the Lord. 
And this is hugely significant. We're going to build on in the second half of this chapter. But we are made right in relationship with the Lord only by faith. Faith alone. It was true for Abram. It's true for us. But this is exactly how God fulfills his promise as Abram looks to the heavens. How will this many offspring come from me and my wife? Galatians 3 says, Paul to the church in Galatia, know then that it is those of faith who are sons, who are children of Abraham. In the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify Gentiles, that's non-Jews and Jews uh, by faith alone, but Jews and Gentiles alike would be part of God's family. He preached the gospel beforehand to Abram saying, in you shall all the nations be blessed. So then those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. See, faith alone justifies, but faith brings us into God's family. This is true for Abram. It's true for us. And and it is a bit of a wake-up call because uh, I I, I love walking with people. I love pastoring. I love shepherding. It's a true privilege. Uh, But there's one thing that's, that's unfortunately common with a lot of people. And is that we impose on God, not just the brokenness and the bruised realities of our relationship in the world. We also impose on God our experiences in life as if God loves us or blesses us or accepts us by our performance. Like we really believe that God operates with us like it's some sort of scales of justice. Well, you've been good. You've been good. So I guess I'm going to, you're on my good list. So I'm just going to bless you. Ah, no, you've been bad. You've made bad decisions. Ah, You're on my naughty list. I guess I'm not going to bless you. You see, you actually, you actually settle for believing that God's like Santa Claus. Like all of God's existence is just to be happy with you because you're good and to give you what you think you want. As if God's some sort of genie that you manipulate and you pray to to get the blessings that you want. That's not how God operates. We're justified, made right by faith. His steadfast love is solid ground and security for us because he's done all the work. We believe. That's it. It's why people like Nicodemus, who have such a small view of God, I mean, tiny view of God, Do you really believe that God is like your high school principal that's just looking to write you demerits? Do you really believe that God is like the cop on Broadway just waiting for you to go 38 so he can pull you over? Like, is that what God is for you? Do you really believe that God is just some distant grandpa in heaven that just wants to, hey, if you're good, I want to give you some candy? No. Nicodemus, a religious ruler of the way that, of the day, really believed that he, he earned God's favor and right standing through his own performance. And Jesus told him he had to be born again, not by flesh, but by water and the Spirit, by faith. You are not saved, says Billy Graham, because of proximity. If you're in a car, a garage all day, it doesn't make you a car. If you go from here and you go to Waterburger and you stay in Waterburger until tomorrow, it doesn't make you a hamburger. If you spend all your day in church, committee meetings, Bible studies, it doesn't make you a Christian. I don't care if you were conceived in church. You're not born again until you have faith in the living God in his work for us. It's faith alone 
that we have access to relationship with the Lord alone and the security of his promises. Second, God reinforces his promise of the land. Now look down in verse 7. This is really fascinating what God does. We, we, we ended here, and we're going to ramp into the second half of this chapter. But look at this. He said to him, Abram said this, or the Lord says to Abram, he says, I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans. He starts to use this covenant language, and if you're a student from Scripture, then this is going to resonate with you. Because when God makes his covenant the Mosaic covenant with Israel, he begins Exodus 20 by saying, I am the Lord who brought you out of Egypt. And if you go to 2 Samuel 7, where God makes his covenant with David, the royal covenant, that he would have a a king and heir forever on the throne, he uses this language. I am the Lord who brought you out of the pasture. And what God is doing is he's using this intimate covenant language that illustrates that his relationship with his people is based on his work, his performance, his calling, his sovereignty. God brought Abram out. And he says, I'm going to give you this land. Verse 8, but Abram said, I mean, God's talking to him. And Abram says, Oh, Lord God, how am I to know? How am I to know? You gave me a sign, but how am I to know that I should possess it? And what God begins to do in this moment is utterly astounding. It is incomprehensible. It is unfathomable what God does in this passage. This is crazy. I mean, if I'm God, I'm going to try to convince him Abram, I promise you can trust me. I'm not like everybody else. You can lean into me. I'm going to be faithful when other people let you down. That's what I would have done. But God gives a covenant ceremony. What's a covenant? I like uh, O. Palmer Robinson's from his really classic book, Christ of the Covenant. I like his definition. It's a bond in blood that's sovereignly administered. God sovereignly administers the means of grace that is his faithfulness to the bond and blood that is a covenant ceremony. Look what he says. Rather than convince him, verse 9, look at your Bibles. God says, bring me a heifer, a cow, three years old. Bring me a female goat, three years old. Bring me a ram, three years old. Bring me a turtle dove and a young pigeon, And Abram brought him all of these things, and he cut them in half, and he laid each half over against them, the other, but he didn't cut the birds in half. And the birds of prey came down on the carcasses, and Abram Abram drove them away. When Abram asked, how am I to know, God initiates what is clearly a ceremony. In the ancient Near East, it was common. In the Hittite culture, in the Caesarean culture, we have all kinds of archaeological evidence of this. I'm holding two glasses right now. I really want you to see. Two pairs of glasses. But it was very common for a king, a great king, to enter into covenant with vassals, a superior entering into relationship 
with an inferior. And what they did, everyone would have known what was happening, including Abram. What they did was that they would take animals. Abram uses what will be ceremonial animals in the Levitic, uh, from the Levitic law and the uh, Mosaic covenant. He uses these, but they would take them and they would cut them in half and they would set the halves on either side. But when you cut a heifer and when you cut a ram and you cut a goat, they're three years old. These are big animals. You cut them in half. You set them apart. What do you get? You get a path of blood in the middle. And what was common was that the king, the superior, would say to the inferior, the vassal, walk through these pieces so that I know when I make these promises to you that you will keep your obligation. And if you don't, you are committed when you walk through these pieces to say, what happens to these animals will happen to me. This is what the covenant ceremony they're setting up. The word covenant literally in this passage, barit, in Hebrew it means to cut. And they're set up a ceremony. What God does next is unreal. He gives a window into his sovereign rule over everything. Look at how it goes on. Verse 12, as the sun was going down. In verse 17 again, when the sun had gone down. This is emphasizing the time that Abram has been wrestling with God. Jacob wrestled with God all night. Abram wrestled with God all night, all day, and into the next night. That's a furnace. That is a furnace whereby the heat of God's promises is driving out all the impurities and our lack of faith. God gives us space to wrestle with him, and he wants us to know that he's going to be faithful. And he makes his sovereignty the reality that he's the king of kings and lord of lords known. Look what he says real quick. A deep sleep fell on Abram, and behold, a dreadful great darkness fell upon him. And the Lord said to Abram, know for certain that your offspring, the, the countless offspring, they're going to be sojourners in a land uh, and will be servants there. This is Egypt. He's, he's, he's foretelling the future. They will be afflicted for 400 years. He got the time right, four centuries. But I will bring judgment on the nation they serve. This is the, the judgment of the 10 plagues that came upon them. And afterwards, they shall come out with great possessions. That is the plundering that the Israelites had when they left Egypt. Verse 15, as for you, you're going to go be with your fathers in peace. You're going to be buried in old age, but they, your offspring, they, I'm going to bring them back to this land after the iniquity of the Amorites are yet complete. He is telling exactly what would happen in the future to Abram's offspring and how they were going to get possession of the land. And in the process he is illustrating, he's not just any king. He's the king. He's the potentate of time. He's the king of history. This king is entering into covenant with Abram and his people to guarantee that the promises of the covenant would be brought not by Abraham's obligations. If it was based on Abram's obligations, he would have walked through those pieces and he would have said, as what happened to this animals, may it happen to me if I'm not perfect. But that's not what happened. Look at what happens at the end of the chapter. This is unbelievable. When the sun had gone down, it was still dark. Behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between the pieces. This is crazy. This is unheard of. 
The person that was called to pass through the pieces was saying the cut carcasses represented the consequences if they weren't faithful to the covenant. But the party that walked through the two pieces here is God himself. This is a theophany, a physical, tangible presence of the Lord. It is a pillar of smoke coming out of a pot. It is a torch of fire. The same way God would reveal himself when he took his people out of slavery and into the wilderness by a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. God is showing up. God passes through the pieces. God is saying, if you're not faithful to the obligations, so this may happen to me. May I be cut to pieces so that my promise for you will become true. And church, that's exactly what happened. It's exactly what happened. God himself was cut to pieces because we could not be faithful. Jesus Christ, the only person to ever fulfill the obligations of the covenant, he was perfect and yet was without sin. He was cut to pieces on the cross so all who believe can be made whole. Jesus Christ was killed to death so that you could be made alive. Jesus Christ took the sin, the consequences of the penalty of breaking the covenant upon himself so that sinners like you and me can receive his righteousness by faith, a right standing with him and access to his blessings. God guarantees his promises because God himself would be cut to pieces. That is faithfulness. And how dare we come to a God that is this faithful with such tiny, tiny expectations. This God is faithful. Now, it's not, your faith can be small, but it's got to be on the Lord. You can have great faith in the wrong things. You're going to look like a fool. Tiny faith in the right place. That is the person of Jesus Christ and his work for you. Great things will happen. Blessing of right relationship. The security that your soul hungers for. It's found only in the steadfast love of the Lord. You see? He's never, I mean, this is why Paul says that nothing can separate you from the love of God in Christ. Nothing, because it's not based upon you. It's based upon him. This is why Paul says, if God is for you, who can be against you? Did he who not spare his own son, will he not give you all things as well? The answer is yes. And he invites you to believe. How do you know that God's working the wickedness of this world for his glory? Because he did it on the cross himself. That's the whole gospel story. So when, we, when we're reading this passage, it's like we have a little bit of a window to the unbelievable, undescribable, remarkable, majestic, beautiful love of God for you, whereby he's so passionate about being in relationship with you. All you have to do is believe. It was for the joy set before him that he endured the cross, scorning its shame. That joy is you. It's you. God is covenantly faithful. And he invites you to know him and the surety of his promises. Don't take this the wrong way. I'm not trying to be rude. I don't care what you see in your life, how broken it is, how your expectations haven't aligned, all the regrets that you have, the debt, bruised. I don't care and then I don't care about that. Of course I care. But I don't care because it is nothing 
compared to the surpassing greatness, the beauty, the majesty of God's faithfulness. That's what I want you to see. Because when you can finally just get a glimpse of it, everything else gets put in perspective. And maybe, just maybe, maybe your problem is that you're so focused on problems that you've missed the person of Jesus Christ. Because in him, all the promises of God are yes. When you hit rock bottom in life, you know what you realize? That rock is Christ. From the bottom, you can resurrect. He's good all the time. All the time, God is good. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your amazing love, and I just pray that you would eliminate and erase all that was said from this well-intentioned heart that would be a distraction from the majesty, the beauty, the splendor of your steadfast love and your covenant faithfulness. Lord, it is astounding that you entered into death so that we could live. It is humbling that you had entered into being cut to pieces so that we can be made whole. Father, we believe. Would you help us with our unbelief? Lord, we love you and we thank you. And I ask that the seeds that are sown by your word will bear a harvest of righteousness in our lives. And we, we just ask that you'd help us to see that you are our rock, our foundation, that we stand, and that you're good all the time. In Jesus' name we pray. All God's people said, amen. amen. Let's stand. Let's respond.